Hello and welcome back to the Stafford Beer Brain of the Firm Reading Group with General Intellect Unit. Uh, today we are continuing uh, Chapter 19, The End of the Beginning, uh, and we are on page 337, the section titled Healthy and Pathological Autopoiesis. At the end of Chapter 18, the concern was expressed that there had been no organizational consequence of proposals which had allegedly been assimilated into the corporate mind of the group. In the preceding section of this chapter, it is recounted the failure of an algodonic signal, which again implicated incapacity in organizational adaptation. The paper issued in April was an attempt to penetrate the basic problem to which these outcomes pointed. It is reviewed here in detail because it is inevitable that a major confrontation would have occurred between the established bureaucracy, including the party establishment of the political left itself, and the cybernetic innovators concerning that problem had the government survived into 1974. Elsewhere in the, this book, Elsewhere in this book, the concept of homeostasis has been invoked passum. It was defined as the capability of a system to hold its critical variables within physiological limits in the face of unexpected disturbance or perturbation. Now, we may define autopoiesis as characterizing a special kind of homeostat, one in which the critical variable held steady is the system's own organization. This is a very powerful concept indeed, as it needs to be, since autopoiesis was first advanced by Umberto Maturana and his associates, sorry, and his associates as the basic characteristic of a living organism. Hitherto, people had placed emphasis on the ability of living things to reproduce themselves. The new approach emphasized that living beings produce themselves. To make oneself, is the exact meaning of the Greek term used. Maturana, distinguished biologist and cybernetician, was the first Chilean whom I had ever met, many years before this current story. I had not met his major collaborator, Francisco Varela, before. It was a delight to be with either or both of them occasionally during these days, and especially to debate the cybernetics of autopoiesis. For these two were not agreed about the societary implications of their theory, and my own view differed from each of theirs. So, uh, this must be on record, both in deference to them and also to free them from any guilt by association with my views. Naturally, I had very closely compared the conditions for life, as expounded by the theory of autopoiesis, with the conditions for a viable system as expounded in this very book. To me, they were complementary and mutually enriching. To me, both applied to societary systems. Such a system is, in my view, by applying the discoverer's own thesis, necessarily autopoetic. In order to survive as a viable system, it must produce itself. Then let us proceed to examine the possible autopoiesis of the five subsystems of the viable system. <clears throat> Evidently, System 1 must be autopoetic because of the recursion theorem which declares its components to be themselves viable systems. Evidently, Systems 2, 3, 4, and 5 are not individually autopoetic because they have no status in their own right. They are subservient systems of the total viable system. 
so too is System 1 subservient, but it uniquely has the capacity to survive independently. Then we may argue, 1. A viable system is autopoetic. 2. The autopoetic faculty for this viable system is embodied in the totality and in its systems 1, and nowhere else. 3. Therefore, any viable system developing autopoiesis in any of its systems 2, 3, 4, or 5 is pathologically autopoetic, and that entails a threat to its viability. By these definitions and by this argument, all the governments that I have studied have been pathologically autopoetic in all four subsystems that are not themselves supposed to be viable systems. There is, moreover, good reason for the general recognition of a network within this quadripartite pathology that is known as, quote-unquote, the establishment. Uh, this could well be defined as the pathologically autopoetic principle which pervades them. Then the point behind the analysis of the April 1973 paper called On, Deber on, excuse me, on Decybernation was the recognition that although we had already affected major change of a sort, we were not impinging on the establishment's own organization, which therefore retained the ability to nullify our efforts. It was in fact beginning to do so by the well-worn expedient of lauding and gladly incorporating some individual components of the total cybernetic plan, such as Cyberstride and the operations room, within the existing managerial paradigm, rejecting other components such as Checo as too exaggerated to belong to that paradigm, and ignoring the whole class of components such as algodonic metering as irrelevant which were not even statable in paradigmatic language. This expedient obviously discards much important work, but the real issue is that it denatures the viability of the plan that was cybernetically designed as a totality. It is to take the cybernetics out of the cybernetic plan. It is to take any actual change out of the set of proposed alterations. In fact, it dismantles the invention altogether. All right, uh, Shane and then Jeremy, go ahead. Yeah, so um, like all this old police stuff, great. But then this bit at the end especially jumps out at me as like the establishment disarms the enemy by partially integrating and absorbing some of what they're doing. And does that, does that not fucking stink of like partial reforms and like you know, electoral stuff is like, oh, well, you know, we, we'd love to work four days a week or whatever. And it's like, yeah, okay, you can work four days a week, but your salary goes down by 20%. Oh, that's not what we wanted. Yeah, but it's a part of what you wanted, right? You get disarmed in this way. Um, and like, there's, there's, there's mistakes there, right? There's, there's like, you know, I mean, the, the one, the, the big one the beer is pointing out to is that there's this looming, like, self-organizing system called the establishment, which they're not actually challenging strongly enough. And then secondly, because that's not challenged, it is able to do its own strategic and tactical maneuvering. And one of the tactics these kinds of things deploy again and again is to kind of dissolve and break down the threat into component parts and integrate the safe parts of it. You get punk on MTV, right, <laughs> in a way. Um, I think I, also, I probably brought this up a long time ago in one of the earlier sessions, but that um, an example from the natural world that keeps sticking with me is these like, sea slugs 
that um, they they attack and, and uh, eat another creature. But the, the other creature has these like cells that are like poison grenades, basically. That they're, they're they're meant to sting and repel predators. But this sea slug can digest that organism and dismantle it in a way that doesn't trigger the grenades. Right? It can then take digest these little poison bombs and move them to the surface of its own skin to use them as a weapon against other creatures. And that's, it's remarkable how that, that creature is able to preserve its own autopoetic loop while disrupting this other creature's loop and then redeploying its own resources in service of the sea slug. I think mm. that bears reflection for the way that uh, capitalism and the bourgeois states tactically absorb parts of the threat to redeploy them uh, in such a way as to neutralize the threat. Right. Uh, so, you know, I guess in the U.S. recently, uh, it's been very little uh, adoption of reform proposals, but uh, it does seem like the, the process that we're describing here is... Uh, indicative of what is happening to the demands for um, defunding the police uh, mm-hmm. and or abolishing the police in America. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or an, another example that just popped to mind is when uh, Macron says that May 68 was the birth of neoliberalism. Right. And that might sound surprising to a lot of people, but then that's in a sense because the demand for like personal autonomy and like kind of consumption freedom or like freedom of expression was sort of met by the the 80s and the 90s of like this like acid bath of individuation and such. Yes. And so in, in a, I mean, he's, he's obviously fucking stupid or whatever, but there's there's a sense in which that's quite true, right? That like the, there was an element of the rebellion that was um, tactically redeployed in, su- in such a way as to serve capital, right? Yeah. And I mean, uh, I feel like that makes a particular kind of sense in the French context even more so than in mm-hmm. the American one, although it, I think it also goes for the American one quite clearly. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so much of the culture of 68 that became a part of the culture of Silicon Valley, you know? Um, uh, yep. Uh, well, I was even just reading an article recently about how, um, you know, this typical thing where uh, it was a it was a critique of of Jacinda Ardern's labor government and the the platform that they're putting forward now that they have this overwhelming majority in in, in parliament uh, and just saying like yeah you know there's no addressing of class problems but like we have like the most diverse and you know individually expressive and liberal society we've ever had um, and in a way that kind of split of the left agenda under the pressure of fiscal constraints uh, means that, or like neoliberal fiscal constraints uh, very much speaks to what Macron is describing there. Um, And, and yeah, and also this phenomenon where it's like, Oh yeah, you can have individual liberation. So we have like the most liberated uh, lawyers and uh, PR people you can imagine in charge of the labor party. Uh, <laughs> it's like we, we got it all our life is, is pure liberation um, 
I think, you know, uh, yeah, anyway, that's, uh, that's, it's, it's really quite something. Um, all right, Jeremy, please go ahead. So I've got like about a dozen things to say about these two pages. So I'm going to just really tamp myself down so I don't (laughs) blow this out. Um, I think this concept of pathological autopoiesis is one of the single most important concepts in the entire book. I think it explains the bureaucracy of the USSR. It explains so many things that destroy revolutions. Um, It explains so, so, so much. But one of the things I want to point out is the Marxist concept of recuperation, especially as illustrated by the situationists and the autonomists. This idea that the bourgeoisie can recuperate huge swaths of any revolutionary program. And do, and it's one of the most powerful counter-revolutionary techniques there is. So much so that defense against recuperation tends to drive organizations kind of insane. Um, It's so easy to recuperate pieces, so hard to defend against that as a weapon. It's something that any revolutionary program has to take into account but I don't think there are very good answers there. It's a really, really tough, difficult problem. The other thing I wanted to point out is that Maturana and Varela did not agree that autopoiesis was a concept of social systems. Flat out did not agree. And yet they let beer write the preface to their book, Autopoiesis and Cognition, in which they released this idea upon the world and warned the reader that Beer was going to say that this applied to social systems, but they did not agree. But they liked Beer so much and they liked his preface so much, they included it as the preface of the book, even though it diverged from what they believed, which is kind of, I've never heard of that anywhere else. It's pretty amazing. So I think the last, we'll get to it, but the last sentence of this section, I quote constantly, and I think it's an incredibly important adage. So I, I'm going to limit it to that, but I just think all of this stuff describes how bureaucracies form, how the democratic leadership deals with rank-and-file Democrats. There are so many analogies of how this messes things up. And when Beer gets to the distinction due to Maturana and Varela of the difference between a structure and an organization, we'll see some tools for fighting back, but this is a very difficult problem. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's interesting that part of the current criticisms of Biden is that he's not doing recuperation (laughs) which obviously sets up anybody who does come along and is willing to do recuperation uh in a very good position right because then a bit left will be like well we couldn't get you know the rev or anything even remotely close to it but uh hey we're gonna get 
you know, recuperation, which is better than nothing. Um, I even see some people celebrating the, like, Biden is going to reduce uh, climate change by 0.1 degrees Celsius by 2050. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Because it's better than, you know, oil industry go burr that that Trump was uh, was promising there. Uh, uh, okay, uh, Jake, and then uh, Matt. Um, I I forgot what I was going to say. So you can skip. Okay, uh, Matt, go ahead. I'm just thinking of the um, what like the the revolutions podcast where, where like uh, uh you know so, so something uh, Mike talks about a couple of times is how like uh you know like almost all these revs like had like kind of an an off ramp that honestly wouldn't even have been that you know it wouldn't have even been that much of an infringement on the privileges of the of the ruling class but you know like they they get so prickly at a certain point about their privileges that they uh yeah that they can't even do recuperation and that actually does like you know destroy the viability of their system. So maybe that's kind of a good thing that's that that, that immune uh, uh, response isn't even happening. Yeah, I mean, you have the I think what you see in the Revolutions podcast is that there is that initial period where uh, the ruling establishment has lost its plasticity and has also lost um, it's also lost some kind of crucial resources uh, and it gets overwhelmed and then there's a revolutionary spiral that happens and then you have a moment of recuperation at the end of the revolution uh, like you know a a thermidor of some kind uh, which well I guess thermidor is the counter revolution and then Napoleon's the actual recuperation Uh, which is like something that would have been far more radical at the beginning of the process than what the ruling establishment was was willing to uh, countenance. And, you know, they could have avoided this radical outcome. But from the perspective of like the most extreme moments of the revolution is highly conservative. Uh, so, you know, like the French Revolution, you get uh, a very limited... Uh, electorate kind of at the end of it uh, you get um, you know reformation of all the irrationalities of, of, of feudal weights and measures and, and the local laws you get uh, the dispossession of the church and the uh, enrichment of the bourgeoisie as a result, uh, but you also just get like a return of the aristocracy and like, they're just as rich as they ever were. Uh, <laughs> you know, like it's, uh, <laughs> um, there, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a major moment of recuperation at the end of the revolution, uh, which is like, you know, somewhere in the middle or somewhere else than, than what you might've seen at, at the beginning or at the most extreme moment. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, well, yeah, and uh, uh, um, 
Yeah, and I, I think I think that there's an important dynamic there of of, of like a, a you know look like recuperation isn't just a solid loss like you know the, 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 there is something you know dare I say dialectical about it that you know in the same way that you know yeah the the, uh, the sea slug um, uh, becomes changed by the thing that it eats you know maybe it becomes stronger altogether but I mean you know like uh, yeah the, it, the things are different and you know I mean you know, uh, 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 yeah as, as much of a betrayal uh, as Napoleon was of the French Revolution hey I mean you know it was kind of the end of a, a feudalism like across the continent you know, the, the end of the holy roman empire was the birth of the italian republic you know like yeah. yes uh <laughs> yeah i was i i just just made me think of what napoleon did to venice and uh it's truly bizarre uh, but yeah, I guess it did contribute to the growth of uh, the birth of the Italian Republic uh, in, in the long term. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, the, it, this, this also reminds me of um, maybe an example from this week where uh, Boris Johnson and the Tories are doing a Green New Deal sort of thing or whatever. And yeah, I mean, it's it's not actually sufficient, yada, yada. But it's very interesting that once once labor and Corbynism and like any of that kind of vaguely left popular movement was completely neutered, Capital, the, the capitalists, right, and the bourgeoisie and their, their sort of lieutenants are then willing to entertain the sort of reforms, but only on the condition that there's no class content to it. And so, in a sense, it's a win of, of a sort, because, like, obviously, a, any kind of activity to try and solve the eco thing is going to be good. But it's also, it's not like, um, it's not like the, the incrementalists will sort of tell you, oh, this is an incremental boost in, in like class power or whatever. It's just like, there's a moment of like class revolt for such and such a change. And then that's blasted apart. And then there's the sort of recuperation that sort of integrates the change, but without the class content. And so it's, it's, it, it, it's um, you know, three steps forward, two steps back and a half step sideways or at a diagonal or through the imaginary dimension. Um, so it, it, that's just really interesting to me that like once the capitalists were f certain that there was just no threat left fr from the left at all, they were then willing to just say, OK, yeah, Green, green New Deal-ish or whatever, just so long as there's enough private contracts and so that it doesn't actually threaten private property. They're willing to do that. And that's, that's going to make it a lot harder, I think, on on the left or like eco-socialist sort of thought, right? Because like um, the whole thing of like, oh, well, socialism is the only possible solution to the climate crisis is probably actually very much true. But try pitching that to a Teesside guy who's doing green energy under a Tory banner. It's going to be a lot harder sell, given that it is, it is evident that the, the capitalists are willing to make these changes, but so long as the class content is erased. That's the invariant that they'll never accept is actual class power. They'll accept all these dumb reforms, whatever. They'll, I mean, well, you know, the eco stuff is a, is a very, very necessary change. But like, you know, four day working week, uh, UBI or anything like that, they'll, they'll give you that kind of shit, but they'll, they'll make you live in a shed while you get your UBI. Just, as, as long as it has no class content, they'll, they'll go for it. Um, so I'm not certain of the, the sort of advantages for building class power in this dynamic of the class power being erased and then uh, capital feeling free to act unfettered is so long as the, the class power is absent, you know. But, you know, also take your point. Like, there is, there is a dialectical process, and there's some, in, some incremental move forward um, in, in each of these moments. Uh, yeah, there's that famous quote from Sartre, uh, progress is crab-like. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it feels like the... 
the capitalist states are groping their way towards the possible rationality of climate leviathan, um, uh, which is, you know, this idea of a world bourgeois government that will uh, create the conditions necessary for capital accumulation while also like doing everything it possibly can to bracket out uh, environmental problems through uh, very like uh, authoritarian measures. Um, <clears throat> okay, uh, Jake, and then uh, Matt. Yeah, I won't. Um, I won't. I'll try not to make this too long, just because we we spent a bunch of time on this section. But um, just that that thing about his like pathological autopoiesis really reminds me a lot of like the. Uh, I'm sure you've all seen this like floating around the internet, but just like some some page from like a CIA manual about how to infiltrate and disrupt left wing groups. And like the idea of like call like call for meetings for everything, call into question whether things are uh, within the purview of this, bring up things that were you know whatever that were like talked about and decided on previous meetings or whatever. And it's just like like the idea of disrupting uh, disrupting an organization by like attaching like attaching to one of the systems like two, three, four, or five, and like blowing it up into its own thing and spinning it off into its own thing of like, well, like, like, let's, you know, let's not focus on the work that we're doing. Like, let's focus on like, oh, is this the proper like channel for getting this, uh, like thing like approved or, you know, like, let's just talk strategy in circles and stuff. And then like, oh, let's do this own thing within this, you know, it's just like, it, I, I really, I agree with everyone that says this is like a good, um, uh, a really good like concept that he brings up because I definitely like I, I see people sort of make that this mistake of like of thinking that you know they're this aspect of an organization that is like one of these higher systems is like needs its own like system one or whatever and then I, I have to like push back against it and be like no, no no we have to remember what we're here for we have to remember what we're doing this for it's it is in service of this like actual work that we're doing. Like, let's not lose sight of that. Let's not try to make it into something more than it is. And most people I've talked to about it are pretty much in agreement, I think. So it's, it's a fairly straightforward explanation, I think, once you kind of lay it out. Yeah, it's, it's very good to keep in mind uh, when trying to keep your priorities straight as an organization, for sure. Um, okay, and uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, uh, uh, some of the re re recuperation th th thing. Yeah, it is interesting how this feels almost like transhistorical because I, like there's lots of stories of like medieval peasants like rising up and then like the ringleaders all get executed, but then like they actually do like give a bunch in, into a bunch of their demands. Like that that little two step seems like you know that, that just seems like it's kind of fun you know, fundamental. And then, you know, you even see it with uh, you know the, the labor piece uh, in in the in the U.S. You know, um, uh, uh, you know, they made sure that they kept all decision-making power. But you know, like uh, in the meantime, you know, they, they, they gave some concessions, which of course, you know, they, they can take away. You know, as soon as uh, <laughs> as soon as the rate of profit get, get, get gets low enough, and they think ultimately it's about like you know, you need like autonomous institutions, autonomous viable institutions that like you know, even if like 
your entryist thing in a, uh, you know, in a particular auto plant, even if that gets purged, you still have an institution that, you know, can then take advantage of the fact that, okay, like these people are now less desperate, you know, they're less worried about being fired. So now we can actually uh, take advantage of that as opposed to, you know, just getting, just getting wrecked. Cause like, you know, the, uh, like I, I don't really buy the, you know, I don't buy immiseration, you know, but pe people aren't bold, like when they're desperate, <laughs> like, you know, the, I, like, I don't think the, 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 the problem, you know, the problem wasn't the new deal. The problem was the red scare. And, uh, you know, you, you you need to have institutions that can survive, you know, um, uh, that and then take advantage of the concessions, you know, making people who now like have some expectations in life. Sure. Yeah, um, definitely. Uh, OK, so let's uh, let's let's keep going here. Um, right. So. In arguing this case, the paper made strong use of four statements made by Maturana. They draw a distinction which is so valuable that they are repeated here in his own words. The term structure emphasizes the relations between the parts as well as the identity of the parts which constitute a whole. The word organization emphasizes the relations which defines, or excuse me, which define a system as a unity and thus determine its properties with no reference to the nature of the components which can be any as long as they satisfy these relations. If the organization of a system changes the identity of the system, uh, excuse me, if the organization <laughs> If the organization of a system changes, the identity of the system changes, and it becomes a new one, a different unity with different properties. Conversely, if the organization of a system stays invariant while its structure changes, the system remains the same and its identity stays unchanged. So that would imply that... Uh, the relations between the parts change, but the relations that define the system as a unity do not change. That would be the, the case in, in this, in, in the organization stays invariant, but the structure changes. Um, uh, although we make these connotational distinctions in the use of the terms structure and organization, we are usually unaware of them and thus do not realize that the organization of a system is by necessity an invariant. We talk about change of organization without realizing that such a change implies a change of system. Like, I think what they mean is if the organizational change were to actually be effective, it would require a structural change. Um, so, you know, uh, this is the basic point of capital, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so, the argument was that the Chilean government establishment was accepting and would continue to accept structural change, but not organizational change. And in this, they were and are not alone. Okay, right. Yes. Uh, yes. Structural change, but not organizational change. 
Um, so this is a bit of an inversion of, of the way we usually talk about structure, it, it, like the way we've inter inherited the term structure in social sciences that comes down from uh, structuralism. It's, it's the opposite of what you would usually think of structure being. Um, <clears throat> uh, okay. However, this was the explanation advanced for the two examples of failure that the paper set out to examine. It went on to discuss the extent to which we could regard the whole work as successful, a matter which has since been debated in the form of management science internationally, both from a solid plinth of ignorance as to what, or excuse me, mostly from a solid plinth of ignorance as to what actually happened. The following was the view of current success taken by my paper. It is still April 1973. If what we wanted to do was to meet the objectives listed for Cyberstride and Project Cybersyn, then we have succeeded. Those were technical objectives, and meeting them may count as success to some people. If what we wanted to do was to display that technical achievement in management action, then we may yet succeed. This is the technocratic objective, and meeting it may count as success to some people. If we wanted to help the people, this was a social objective, and the outcome is ambiguous. For if the invention is dismantled and the tools are excuse me, and the tools used are not the tools we made, they could become instruments of oppression. This would count as failure. If we wanted a new system of government, certainly a political objective, then it seems that we are not going to get it. This too must count as a failure. Any one person who has worked on this team may have a complex motivation in which the above technical, technocratic, social and political objectives are mixed in unique proportions to constitute his own objective functional. This would explain some current confusion and the disagreement about success. It still does, I think. We had made huge strides in developing non-bureaucratic management by simply ignoring the established bureaucracy, by setting up a set separate framework. Please note that this is the ultimate form of organizational change because the structural entity is altogether replaced, Maturana's terminology. Then innovations cannot be merely structurally assimilated, they redefine the system. Having remarked that my own recent proposals for effecting change on this scale had indeed been assimilated rather than implemented, the paper complained that other members of the core group were not making any proposals at all to this end. It called for them, and it offered certain criteria that any such proposals ought to satisfy. These are excuse me, these are repeated here, not because they have generality, for they do not, but because they do illustrate how a topic sounding as vague and remote as the cybernetics, excuse me, the cybernetics of change can be sharpened to precise ends in an actual situation. Uh, so this is a document uh, titled uh, Criteria for Proposals for Organizational Change in Chile. Uh, dated the 27th, excuse me, dated the 27th of April, 1973. Uh, so point one, a proposal must aim to change the organization of the established order and not be a proposal for simply implementing a system of management. Two, a proposal must involve activity by the workers. The system was designed for them and they are the variety amplifiers. 
I think that doing rather than, excuse me, I think that doing rather than teaching is the key to this required proposal. That is why I am now so hesitant about making films. Uh, so number three, a proposal must identify structural change, which is easily, it, excuse me, ha, a proposal must identify structural change, which is easily accomplished in non-bureaucratic terms. These we already know because of CyberSyn. Point four, a proposal must envisage our invention as an instru instrument of revolution. I mean that the way of production is still a necessary feature of the Chilean revolution, but that the way of regulation is an extra requirement of a complex world not experienced by Marx or Lenin. I think it's highly disputable, uh, this, this point. I, 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 as I said, I, I think that Marx was already onto this question like way in advance. Um, uh, <laughs> a proposal must treat our invention at the right level of recursion. The invention needs to be seen in perspective. Uh, some of us see nothing but the invention and stand to be abandoned by those who see the political setting in which the invention is embedded. Uh, some see nothing but the immediate political crisis and who can blame them and therefore have forgotten the pur purposes of the original inventing. See all Democrats, as of now. Uh, all our endeavors should, could fall between these two stools. All our endeavors could fall between these two stools, yes. Uh, obviously, this list is based upon the political philosophy of the national management at that time, as these chapters have consistently argued that it should be. It is not the intention of this book to discuss politics per se. The list does demonstrate how cybernetic generalizations may be sharpened to precise ends in an actual situation. It was followed by a long commentary on the political implications of any putative proposal. Then it returned to this managerial cybernetics, which are our current concern. It claimed that we, the agents of change, were missing our opportunities because the facts of the situation could not be understood without reference to some model of that situation which enshrined political beliefs raised upon ideological foundations. The argument was that we were ignoring, therefore eliminating, those facts that did not map onto this model. How common indeed this is. It is endemic to the human condition. Such models are paradigms. If there is to be a mapping of the facts onto a paradigmatic model, it will be homomorphic, many to one. The variety reduction involved fails to transmit the information that the facts supposedly constitute. Three examples of this phenomenon were discussed in the April paper. First was the issue of organizational change, and second, our treatment of bureaucracy. The third talked about corruption, which is a problem in so many countries and is always difficult even to discuss because no paradigmatic model of good government can possibly include corruption as a variable. It can include illegal acts, because these are straightforwardly negations of the law, and their perpetrators are liable to punishment. Corrupt acts are, however, in some sense accepted in a society where they are the norm. These considerations led the April paper to define corrupt acts as those acts which explain away actions that are contrary to law. In discussion of the paper, Maturana proposed this alternative. Corruption all those acts which do not validate the system we want to validate. I think that's a better formulation, yeah. Uh, 
In any case, it seems clear that the evident epistemological problems faced in trying to deal with such issues are founded in logical mappings that do not exhibit requisite variety. Then this is one of the mechanisms whereby viable systems may the more readily become pathologically autopoetic. A system 2, for example, that is intent on its own survival rather than its dedicated anti-oscillary function can actually fund this false activity from corrupt acts. Those who concern themselves about this particular system too, then, are likely to address themselves to the disgrace of the evident corruption and to fail to understand the pathological autopoiesis. This in turn will make them less capable of rooting out the corruption. Discussing these matters once in India, a cabinet minister was astonished that anyone should challenge his conviction that the Indian character is distinctively flawed. Of course it is not. If we ask the cybernetic question, for which autopoetic system is this flow of corrupt money the salary, we shall be led straight to the pathological structure that requires diagnosis and treatment. Follow the money. <laughs> Not literally, cybernetically. Um, but yeah, I, I think that uh, it's... I think what he says about Marx and Lenin is partially true and partially not true. Because, like, I think Marx, uh, Marx very much understood the need for organizational change. And, like, Capital Volume 1 lays out this problem very well in the way in which, like, under, uh, I believe it's in the section on simple reproduction, you know, it shows how the workers of one bourgeois are paid with the wages of another bourgeois and how the simple relation between the bourgeoisie and the workers inherently disempowers the workers. So that is really a question of organization and not simply one of structure, as, as Bira Maturana are describing it. Um, and I think that, you know, Marx's talk about the value form is also really valuable, uh, useful in that regard. Uh, but, uh, you know, yeah, again, when it comes to actually revolutionizing the state, uh, Marx and Engels have something to say about it, but it's pretty limited. Uh, and, you know, same with Lenin. Uh, so uh, this is, uh, I think Beer is correct in that regard, uh, for sure, about the, the whole organization thing. Okay, so let's go to uh, Rudy and then Shane, Jeremy and, and Jake. Oh, I'm sorry. I must have raised my hand by accident. Okay. Jeremy's saying he wants to talk. Okay. He has to leave. Okay, Jeremy, please go ahead. Yeah, sorry, I need to leave fairly soon, but I wanted to comment on that last line. For which autopoietic system is this flow of corrupt money the salary? I think salary trips you up here. I think this formula is considerably more profound than just the money. I think capitalist systems, bourgeois systems, tend to occlude the actual power structures at play, and then they pretend to be democratic, they pretend to be fair, they pretend to be reasonable, but behind the scenes there are corrupt structures going on, corrupt power structures, and because they're occluded, he's giving, Beer is giving the proletariat a weapon here a lens in order to investigate where the corruption is in a system trying to hide its own corruption. 
if things don't smell right, if you think things are unfair, but you can't point your finger on it, what you should do is look at what occluded possible system would be benefited by the stuff that doesn't smell right. You know, just that question, ooh, this seems really strange. Is there a system going on here that's benefiting from this because it doesn't appear to be benefiting the whole system? Maybe there is an occluded hidden system that is benefiting from this. I think it's an extraordinarily powerful weapon at our disposal for doing real analysis of what's actually going on. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it it gets back to this this classic cliche of uh, political critique where uh, the king is not corrupt; it's his corrupt vizier or his corrupt ministers who are whispering poison like worm tongue into his ear. Uh, this is precisely the wrong conclusion to draw unless you're actually dealing with worm tongue. Uh, I, I feel like Tolkien literalizes it in such a way that uh, you can't really get around him being right, but the political lesson to take away from it is precisely wrong. Yeah, we're, there's lots of systems. I mean, in the viable system model, one of the illusions is that you're only looking at one system when you look at the viable system model. But actually, there's all these different other systems swimming around. And so if something in what looks like a viable system isn't viable or it's perverse in some way, it's something strange is going on, maybe there's a different autopoietic system for which this is the way that autopoietic system functions. Yes. So I think, you know, the same way that Marx talks about how things appear and then contrasts it with how things are, I think it appears that we're tackling one viable system through the viable system model. But actually, there's all these different systems swimming around. And this analysis of, of what pathological autopoietic system is this benefiting gives us this amazing tool for prying open what was previously hidden, seeing what's really going on rather than how things appear on the surface. Right. Right. Yes, indeed. And I need to go. Bye-bye. Okay. Take care. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Um, yeah. So, like, uh, perhaps a little sort of expansion on even that, that point from Jeremy that, like, um, I think in any given situation, we might see that um, there are multiple overlapping contingent partial systems developing. And so a, a component part might be sort participating in three or four systems that are emerging and we won't find out until later which one it actually gets integrated into if you can imagine like a kind of probiotic soup where there are many there are many possible organisms that are starting to emerge and all of the if you identify particular molecules they'll be sort of like half involved with one tendency and half involved with another um so there's multiple in the sense of like ac multiple actual identifiable systems that are maybe occluded from view but it's also probably the case that those systems and all of their components are going to be contingently participating in a bunch of different possible future directions of development. Um, and that in, that in that snapshot moment, you're not going to see exactly how it's going to play out yet. So the, 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 you know, all this like contingency and sort of tension uh, is going to be there. Yeah, and I, I think it gets back to the, the different criteria that Beer develops, right? Mm -hmm. The technical, technocratic, social, political... Uh, 
there's a degree to which, you know, uh, success in one degree can affirm one system, but then deny another. Mm-hmm. Um, totally right. Uh, yeah, it's um, layered games in that sort of sense, right? There's a uh, multi multi layered sort of game stuff going on. Um, I also just think like this, these are, these are wonderful pages, but it's it's so it's so great that with the criteria for proposals and stuff, even just proposal one. Beer fucking leapfrogs practically every living Marxist that's ever fucking put pen to paper. Like he's just, he just like all the, all this social democrat shit, all this fucking you know SPD, Kautsky, Hills, pilferding, all these cunts. Fuck, fuck them. Just, just completely, just leapfrog, pole vault over their fucking heads into the fucking distance. Um, he's just like, no, you, you can't fucking do this. You have to actually change the organization of the thing. There's, what are you talking about? You're gonna fucking like. Just like take over capital, fuck that. No, you gotta you gotta completely dismantle that shit. And point two has to be with the workers, like you yeah. know, just like this. This isn't a Marxist text, but these these couple of pages are fucking like right on the money. Like it, it's really amazing, and it leaves you wondering what this kind of stuff. All all that fucking energy that was sort of spent on all that kind of stuff, and all the all, even all the all the time we Marxists spend thinking about like, oh well, what if the SPD did whatever in in such and such a year and all this kind of thing. Ah, you know, like so much of that was just pointing in the wrong fucking direction. Anyway, it's hard to it's hard to think that there was anything there. You know, it's like what well, they were going to take over Parliament. Big fucking whoop! It would have been the same shit. It's the same organization. You have to actually smash the damn thing and reorganize it. Um, you know, right, right. Well, yeah, and I I think yeah, the, any any faction of the I mean, obviously any faction of the SPD that would have been able to do organizational change or was interested in organizational change was not actually in power. The right, the right was in power and the right was just interested in structural change in, in the sense that Beer and Maturana define it and not what structuralists define it as. And, and you mean, you mean the right in the like McNair sense, right? The, the right. Yeah. The, left, the, the SBA yeah, sure. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> okay. Uh, Jake and then Matt. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot in this, like these few pages. So kind of like got a lot of thoughts, but I'm not quite sure if I can communicate them well, but we'll see. Um, yeah, definitely. I, I really like this criteria for proposals uh, thing, this like five point thing. And, you know, I know he says they have they don't have generality, but I, I kind of can see <laughs> I can see them uh, mapping onto a lot of stuff, like even just sort of like my sort of more like lower scale stuff than just the, the whole than thinking of things that restructure the whole economy. I mean, but just even in like the way that we go about things, you know, like clearly, right. The, the previous methods for, for trying to bring about revolution failed, you know, or continue to fail, let's say, because you could say there's still involved evolving or un, unravel, well, unraveling, I guess, but like uh, happening, you know, but like they haven't succeeded and I'm not quite sure if any of them will, but you know, it's like, it's we have to kind of think of the structure of bringing about revolution as as like proposals that we need to change. We can't just change the structure of the way we do it. Like, right. We can't just say, oh, well, like, let's just glom this thing onto the existing sort of structures like of parliaments or whatever. We can't just sort of change the people that are in power. You know, we have to really think about whole organizational over overhaul, you know, and, and I think there's there's a lot there, especially like and having these sort of cybernetic ideas really um for me has been quite inspiring in terms of thinking about alternatives um and 
but and I, I really like his um, I really like the the point three that just that like you have to identify structural change um, but in like non-bureaucratic terms because I think you know you can say all you want about like oh well we just need this but if, if the way you're proposing it is really just like well these people that are in leadership or in power know what I mean when I say this it's not going to actually affect the change right because it's not going to be taken up by the workers or by the rank and file or by the by the people you know because they don't understand it or feel like that is <laughs> yeah they don't feel like that is something that they own i think that's a that's a thing it's like got to be owned by the people um and um yeah so I, I really like the quite uh you know and and the way he says it's got to fall between the people who uh was it see the immediate political crisis and can't see past that and then the people that see nothing but like well i've got this idea and if i just implement this idea it's like no you have to you have to you have to have the idea it has to be informed by the political moment you're in and by the material conditions and stuff. And so, you know, you have to be able to evolve that, right. It has to, in some sense, you know, the, the invention or the idea, the, the organizational change that you want to bring about has to be part of a cybernetic or it has to be part of a viable system in order to be able to evolve, to encompass the new, the, the conditions that you're in. Um, and, and yeah, he like, um, I just started reading, um, Heart of the heart of enterprise, and he talks. He starts it off by talking about like, well, you know, you think you know what uh, what a system is? Like, psych, everything's a system. There's a million ways to look at a system. Systems are subjective. You can't you can't objectively say this is where the boundaries of the system are. Depends on the observer. Depends on the conditions you're looking at. Depends on what the knowledge that you have. And so it's like you got to look at it from the right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, um, and and so I think it's important to keep in mind the like, you know how are we viewing the system? And I think that really gets to the heart of a lot of, a lot of the mistakes that people make, you know, when it comes to like revolutionary, like ideas and organization, like they're looking at this, at the system or a system from a particular angle and not necessarily considering that what there's, that the conception they have isn't the totality of it or isn't encompassing really everything that is important to change or to like abolish, you know? And, um, and so I think having that flexibility of like being able to say like, okay, well, actually this thing that I didn't consider as part of this thing that needs to be like tackled is actually part of it. And here's why, and here's how we can change it. And I think that's also, that also gets at like the necessity of like bringing in different voices, um, especially in like America where there's where the like problem of stuff like race has really complicated and like thrown I got a spanner in the works, but that sounds, maybe it's too, that's too, uh, kind, you know, it's like really like just fucked up. Like the fact that there's been no multiracial, like leftist organization, like of any scale has really been a problem. And, um, and that, and that, I think part of that is because you lack the ability to like step out of the context that you're in and you got to bring in people from different perspectives to like actually be able to fully diagnose the system and diagnose the change that's necessary, you know? And like, it's certainly, I'm not saying it's impossible for anyone to say like, Oh, well, this is a problem that could help black people and it should be done. You know, if you're not black, it's like, obviously it's possible to do that. But I just mean like at the level of like implementing at the, at the right level of recursion, you know, it's like, we need to bring people in. And, um, and I think that's, it's a, it's a real task. And then just briefly, just that last bit on corruption. I really like, cause it's, I personally didn't, think much about like you know 
in my mind, corruption is bad, obviously, right? But that's kind of a, it's kind of like a tautological uh, definition. Like, well, corruption is bad because it's corruption, and corruption is bad, you know. But it's like it really is the like idea of like, well, you know, what is this system? What system is this corruption serving? Like, and I think you know, as as anti-capitalist, it's can be easy because it's usually right to sometimes say like, well, the system it's serving is capitalism. The system it's serving is these people want to enrich themselves because enriching yourself is the way to get ahead and way to get things you want. So therefore, you know, uh, so in some sense, it's like an easy answer. In some sense, it's like usually correct. But then in the other sense, it's like, well, that doesn't really tell you how to diagnose and fix it, you know? And I think, I think that uh, idea of like, well, there's a corrupt, there's corruption for a reason. Is it that these people who are accepting bribes aren't getting paid enough? Is it that these people that are accepting bribes don't have the control over the system that they they should have, like the requisite variety of like being able to let someone go if they if you know they're not like gonna destroy or kill a lot of people or something, whatever, you know, is like is not there and therefore bribes are just sort of the way of like handling that. Like, oh well this person paid me, so it's okay and they're probably not gonna they're probably not like an enemy of the state or something because they have money and whatever. I don't know. But um, I, I I quite like this little like section here. Yeah, I, I think, you know, what it brings to mind for me, this question about corruption is like uh, uh, Japanese pork barrel politics uh, and like uh, the funneling of government funds to the regions that existed to a greater extent in the past, still still kind of exists, but uh, you know, a lot of the politics in Japan was the power of of rural areas uh, siphoning cash out of the the uh, central government, um, and obviously that's corruption if you look at it from the perspective of the social of the central government or from the metropolitan areas. But if you look at it from the perspective of the rural areas. That's why they're participating in the government at all in the first place. So it, it, it is exactly that thing of like, well, okay, these these systems aren't objective. Like, what? They're not objective in the sense that there's just one system. You do need to think about this multi-perspectively, um, and uh, you'll you'll see different uh, ends. You know, it's like a, the Pentagon, right? You look at the Pentagon, it's like, oh my God, all this money going to wasteful projects. It's, it's so corrupt. But if you look at it from the Pentagon's perspective or the defense contractor's perspective, it's like, no, 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 this is the reason why the United States exists is to enrich <laughs> arms manufacturers. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, you know, uh, that doesn't mean that it's like, oh, it's perfect that that's fine. Cause no, like it's, it's obviously a problem from the perspective of the broader population uh, to at least some degree. Uh, but yeah, uh, you need to, you need to uh, incorporate perspective into your analysis, um, which I think uh, is one of the strong points of, the, of like the way that Marx approaches things in the 18th Brumaire, right? Um, uh, when he's looking at the state and when he's looking at political struggle. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Uh, the, 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 the corruption stuff, like yeah, the, 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 definitely one, one, one of my favorite bit, bits, maybe even of, of the whole book, just because like you know, uh, corruption's not like 
uh, you know, the way it's represented in a video game where it's just like, oh, you've got like 15% corruption in here. And that means, uh, uh, you know, like less troops being raised and, and just less uh, money being raised by taxes. Now, like it always has structure. You know, there's always another viable system that's making this happen. And, you know, it might even exist kind of in an ecosystem with like the larger system. I'm thinking of like, like Gladio and uh, organized crime and all these fascists who, you know, like, uh, you know, maybe those CIA guys didn't even necessarily have such a high opinion of really, but I mean, you know, the the, the uh, you know the, the, they were breaking the law, like you know, in service of like the, the this this larger you know um, uh, capitalist system, and so you know it didn't really count as as, as corruption um, uh, 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 to a lot of people. And I, I think it also gives a lot of insight into how like anti-corruption drives tend to manifest in the real world. Like they do tend to be faction purges because you know the, 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 there's there's more than one group here that's vying for 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 power, and they all have their ecosystem of um, uh, uh, you know uh, of patronage and uh, um. And, and little institutions and uh, you know it, it actually is very hard like to see where you know like business as usual ends and, and corruption begins and that's because it is subjective it's about who you want to win yeah which i think gets to the core of the um current uh power struggle in the labor party over uh supposed like laxity or enthusiasm or correctness in uh pursuing anti-semitism uh, pursuing anti-Semitism countermeasures, yes. Uh, so it's uh, it kind of had to come down to a purge in some way, uh, and it wasn't going to happen previously. And now it's it's being used as an excuse for cleaning a party up of leftists. So it's uh, yeah, I mean it's a form of corruption for sure. Uh, in terms of like the sense that labor should not be an anti-Semitic organization, which I think almost everyone would agree with. Uh, but then when you get down to, okay, what does that actually mean? Uh, it's come down to a faction purge. Um, and whether that will actually uh, remove anti-Semitism is a very open question. <laughs> it seems kind of unlikely because uh, it really seems just motivated by purging the leftists. Uh, okay. Um, right. So uh, I think we're going to wrap there for today and finish the chapter next time. Um yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and uh, yeah, so thanks everyone for participating. Um, and uh, this was a very interesting section in terms of the many organizational and political insights it had. Uh, I, I really think that we can carry all of this uh, forward uh, in our thinking and in our organizational praxis and so on. Um, because uh, beer, as, as Shane said, sort of got to the core of a lot of problems that uh, the revolution was encountering and which tend to prop up, uh, pop up again and again and again. Uh, so yeah, next time we are going to see, quote unquote, the end of the peaceful road, uh, ending in uh, the assassination, well, suicide slash assassination of Salvador Allende. Uh, and... Uh, uh, then we'll be on to the big final chapter, uh, the giant mammoth one, uh, where we, we, we what, look at what does this all mean? 
So I'll see you then. Uh, thanks, everybody. Fantastic. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Everyone, bye. Bye.